0: 1 Timothy chapter 5. The theme of 1 Timothy, as we've been studying it, is on how to build the church of God. How to build the church. Of course, as you well know, the church is not the building, although the building is important. Although we have a very good building, a beautiful building, the church really is made up of the people. The people. Each one of you are a block in this structure. The foundation, of course, is the teachings of the apostles, established for us by the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we are to erect this church. Here we are in chapter 5, which means that we are nearing the end of our study in 1 Timothy. There are six chapters. We are going to look at just the beginning of chapter 5. Next week, we'll look at a major portion of that same chapter. And this morning, I want you to see the importance of the crook. What crook is that? The shepherd's crook. The shepherd's staff. We're going to begin by first taking a look at Psalm 23. I think Psalm 23 sheds a lot of light in what we see here in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy. Uh, Rick just read to us from chapter 23. You will recall that... The Apostle Paul is writing to this young pastor named Timothy. Uh, Timothy, uh, we don't know his age, but we we know that he's a young man. Not a teenager, no, he's an adult, but he's a young man. And this is the first church he's pastoring. It wouldn't make sense because the church is at this point very new to history. And this church happens to be in Ephesus, which is present-day Turkey. That's right, present-day Turkey, and and that's where Timothy is pastoring. Paul had been pastoring there for a while. Paul has moved on and has placed Timothy there to be the shepherd of that flock. Timothy has a great responsibility. It's a significant responsibility. His job as the pastor is to shepherd the flock that's there. Now, we don't know the size of the church. Uh, What many churches did in those early years of the church, is have small groups in homes because they didn't have church buildings. And so they would meet in homes, and there would be a leader, an elder, in each one of those homes. And Timothy was responsible for all those sheep. Eventually, um, as we see here today, uh, church buildings were established, and they began to meet in unison together in a building. In fact, you could catch one of those early church buildings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They shipped one block at a time over, and there's a significant building that used to be actually, prior to being a church, used to be a pagan temple. Pagan temple. And eventually it became a church where Christians, early Christians, would worship. What I find interesting is that graffitied into the stone is so-and-so loves (laughs) so-and-so. How things change, and yet they don't change at all. So some young couple decided they would carve that into the stone. And there it is, sitting in New York City. A place of early worship. Here we are, not too far from New York City. Some of you say, not far enough. In a place of worship. Raising our voices to Christ. Opening our hearts to the Spirit. And giving Him the adoration He deserves. Well, Timothy is responsible for this flock. He is to feed the church with the words of God. He is to guide the church with, of course, godly principles. Timothy is supposed to protect the sheep from whatever is dangerous, that is the church, the people, the church, the sheep. And he is the elder. Uh, And because he's the elder, he is to pastor. Elder is actually his title. What does he do? What does an elder do? An elder pastors. So, People often refer to me as Pastor Paul, but really, I'm Elder Paul, and what do I do? I pastor. I I care for the sheep. Pastor's the verb, elder's the noun. And even as a shepherd, pastor's his sheep in the field, so the pastor has a responsibility of shepherding the fold of God. Uh, We live in in a community that is well-churched, and there are some really good Bible-teaching churches in our community. I thank the Lord for that. We don't compete with each other. We simply preach the word alongside of each other. There are some communities not far from here that are pretty much void of good Bible teaching churches. What a shame it is. Thank the Lord that that is not our case. Well, the 23rd Psalm, as it was just read to us, is probably the most familiar of all the Psalms. It was written by David, and maybe it's even the most familiar text of the Bible outside of John 3.16. Ken Bailey is an author of the book, The Good Shepherd. He writes this about the 23rd Psalm. Let me read it to you. He says, the psalmist, David, has a very basic set of wants that the shepherd provides for his sheep. That list includes food, drink, tranquility, rescue when lost, freedom from the fear of evil and death, a sense of God surrounded by the grace of the Lord and a permanent dwelling place in the house of God. That's the 23rd Psalm, correct? He goes on to write, a, a, an ever-rising mountain of material possessions is not on this list. Did you notice that as you read 23rd Psalm, how basic it is? The shepherd, the sheep rather David is asking for the basics of life from the good shepherd. He writes that list includes, of course, food, drink, tranquility, rescue. Yes, there is no hint of any need for power or control. An externally generated set of compulsive desires and the need to be constantly entertained are also absent. The sheep knows that only with the shepherd's help can they secure the above limited list of basic wants. That's the 23rd Psalm. Uh, Take a look, if you can, go back to the 23rd Psalm. And as you see it, the very first verse, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And typical of many psalms, it makes a statement at the very end, outset the very first verse makes a statement and then the rest of the psalm explains that statement that's what we have in the 23rd psalm the lord is my shepherd i shall not want in other words god as our shepherd the good shepherd provides for us fully it's good news he provides for us fully and so now david explains what he means by that verse two he says he makes me lie down in green pastures that is to say that god feeds me and he gives me rest He leads me, meaning that God guides his sheep. He leads me beside still waters. He quenches my thirst. He places me in a place of tranquility. Your rod, that is your protection, and your staff, or your crook, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The crook is God's correction. The club is God's protection. And and the psalmist says, With your protection and with your correction, you comfort me. Now, it's easy for us to understand, With your club, you protect me, that's comforting. But notice here, he says, With your staff, your crook, your correction, you comfort me. You anoint my head with oil meaning that the good shepherd heals his sheep. In order to meet one's needs, pastoring also means that the pastor needs to correct the sheep. Now, some of you are saying, well, what's he getting at? Why, why, why is he talking about this, this this morning? Well, the reason I'm talking about this this morning is because we are now in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, okay? verses 1 and 2. It reads this way. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Every shepherd in the days of shepherding, it's still done in other parts of the world, but here in the biblical context, every shepherd carried a cup to quench the thirst of a sheep. You see, if a sheep would continuously go in the wrong direction, continuously leaving the fold. Of course, the shepherd would take the crook and and pull it back in. But if that little sheep refused to obey, the shepherd would actually take it and break a leg. He would correct it. And then he would carry the sheep on his shoulders. And there that sheep would learn to trust the shepherd and stick and depend on the shepherd. And so, of course, with that broken leg being set, he could not go to the water and drink himself. So the shepherd would give him to drink from a cup. Not only that, but he would also carry a pouch with some food in it so that he could feed that sheep. Of course, he had a club on his belt with which he would protect the sheep from any praying animals. And he would have oil as well. And with that oil, it was medicinal. He would help to heal whatever... Injuries the sheep would have. But of course the crook was in order to correct the sheep. When the sheep went in the wrong direction, he would nudge it, pull it, drag it back to himself, back into the fold. Here the Apostle Paul gives Timothy instructions on how to use that crook. How to use the crook of correction. And using the crook I think is probably the the hardest part, the hardest part of the pastor's job. In fact, feeding the sheep is rather easy. I'm doing that now. You're here to listen. I'm here to feed. It's rather easily done as long as you stay awake. Healing is rather pleasing when you're hurting, isn't it? Protecting is usually rather welcomed. Please protect me. But correction often faces pushback. Few people appreciate being corrected. And I think I'm being nice when I say few people, right? Few people appreciate being corrected. Generally so, our sins are so dear to us, but so dear to us that we will go to great lengths to keep doing them. And we don't want to be corrected. In fact, we're often insulted when we're corrected. Remember the days when you were young and your parents corrected you? How many times did you say, Mom, thank you so much for having corrected me. Dad, thank you so much for having spanked me. I'm so grateful. No. Usually we were angry. Usually we refused to accept the blame. Sometimes we were alienated we alienated ourselves from our parents because we refused to be corrected. Now, as adults, we tend to do the same thing, but in an adult fashion. Correction does not come easy for, for most of us. Some of us may be so humble that we appreciate correction. If that's you, will you stand up? No. <laughs> of course not. Humility is one of those traits that as soon as you realize you have it, you lose it. Right? We do not like being corrected. In fact, when we are corrected, we feel challenged, and we want to challenge back. Uh, take note of what Proverbs chapter 10 verse 17 reads. It says, "Whoever heeds instruction, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life." but he who rejects correction leads others astray. Two parts there. Whoever listens to correction, you are venturing, you are walking down a very good path. It's leading you to life. However, if you are rejecting correction, not only are you walking away from life but towards death, but you're also going to take others with you. That's rather sobering, isn't it? You will take other people with you. Correction leads to life, whereas an unwillingness to be corrected will lead not only you in the wrong direction, but it will lead others as well. You are not alone. You will lead others as well. Now, generally, at at the core of the objection of being corrected is pride. No one tells me what to do. It's pride. Who are you to tell me what to do? Who are you to correct me? Now, when our bosses correct us, we generally accept it. Not because we generally agree with our bosses, but because we know who's going to pay us, right? There's payment at the end of the week involved. And so, okay, sir, okay, ma'am, thank you. I'll do better next time. But when there is no monetary advantage, when there is no obvious advantage, We tend to push back when we are corrected. And the issue there is simply pride, an indulgent autonomy that says, no one tells me what to do, or I refuse to change. And it's so contrary to the Bible. The Scriptures again and again calls on us to change. In fact, the Scriptures make it clear that change is necessary. It doesn't say if you need to change, but you do need to change. We all need to change. There are areas in our lives which need to be changed. It needs to be molded by the Spirit of God. And we generally don't want them to change. Why? Because we tend to love our sins. We tend to like doing what we're doing. That's why we're doing them. Even if it makes us feel guilty, eventually we get used to the guilt. And we just keep doing it. And then we find ways to defend it. And yet what we see in the scriptures is that correction is a sacred tool issued by God. Imagine how many, how many sheep the shepherd would have lost if he did not have that crook. How many sheep would have been left to flounder in the wilderness? As the shepherd is taking care of the 99, he says, there's no way I can go back and get that one. Eventually there's 99, then 98, then 97. Eventually he's down to 82. But that crook was instrumental in correcting the sheep and bringing that sheep alongside the fold along with the others, for his own good, but also for the good of the shepherd. Sometimes the correction that's necessary is because of some sinful behavior, some sinful actions, some sinful habit, but not always. Sometimes correction is needed simply because the people of God are believing things that are not true, uh, because they picked up a book, or they listen to somebody on TV or online who's simply espousing things that are not biblical. It's not hard to do. It's very easy to be unbiblical and be convincing. That's why everything I say you should look for in the scriptures. Keep your finger on the text. Does the Bible really say that? Feel free to check it out. It should be there if this is what I'm telling you. Sometimes correction needs to come simply because we're believing things that are simply not true. It sounds biblical, but it's not. I think that you can agree that most people we encounter in life, ourselves included, have made up our minds that we are going to go full speed ahead. This is what I've decided I'm going to be. This is what i decided I'm going to do. This is the direction I want. And so what we decide to do is that we look for people who will agree with us. Sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's harder. But we look for people who are going to agree with us. Why? Because we don't want them to stop us. We want to go in a particular direction, right or wrong. This is my determination And so we look for people who agree with us or who at the very least will not interrupt us. Let me remind you of another proverb. Chapter 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Plentiful are the kisses of an enemy. Hmm. What a contrast. Would you agree? The difficult words of a friend... Versus the flattery of an an enemy. Which do you prefer more? I know which feels better, but which is better? The correction of a friend. Oh Lord, so grant us wisdom that we would know best. As a result, what we see here in 1 Timothy 5 is that in being built as a church of God, in accord with God's word, we need to treat each other as family. And that's my second point this morning. Treat each other as family. And that's what we see here in verses 1 and 2. Take a look once again, 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. And there we have four categories on how to care for the church of God, how to care for the sheep They belong to Christ. I think it's very easy to misuse the crook. It's very easy to misappropriate the staff of the shepherd. For example, parents can very easily misuse the crook. I remember some years ago, I was visiting my mother's hometown. And everybody knew who I was, though they had never met me. It was this little town, as rural as could be, as backwards as it could be. And as I walked down the street, the mayor came out and invited me to lunch. He says, I know who you're related to. How's your uncle doing? I said, "Why? Well, you knew my uncle? Sure did. And so we went out to lunch, the mayor and I, and his shotgun next to him. People saw us in the streets, my brother and myself, and they knew exactly what family we belonged to because we looked so much alike. And they asked, how's your grandmother doing? And I would tell them about my grandma. And then they went on to say, oh, what a terrible teacher she was. Oh, what a mean woman she was. And one guy actually said that your, your grandmother took her shoe off and hit me over the head with the heel because I did whatever it was in class. What a legacy. When I returned home from that trip, she asked, did anybody recognize that? Did anybody remember me? And I said yes. And she said, what did they say? I told her the truth, and I still regret it. I never saw my grandmother cry except for that one time. She misused, misappropriated the crook. Teachers do that. Parents do that. Coaches do that, and pastors can very mis, very easily misuse the crook of correction as well. Now you notice here. You notice here that the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to be a good pastor. But in doing so, he's also writing to me, isn't he? He's saying, Paul Freire, you be a good pastor. Don't misappropriate that crook of correction. But let me take it one step further. This principle is also presented to you as you interact with each other. This is a principle that is for all of us, because we are all living in community, we're living as the family of God, and we hold each other accountable according to God's word. We'll take a look at a few passages in a few moments, but I want you to see that this is not just for Timothy, it's not just for me, it is for us. It's for us. And so there are four categories for us to consider when it comes to correcting one another. And we're looking at just two verses, and there you see those four categories. And the first one is this, older men. How do you correct older men? Well, it used to be where I was the young man. That's no longer true. But there are still some of you who are older than me. Mind you, many of you. How are we to correct older men? Well, look at what it says there. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. As you would a father. Now, again, we are are to treat each other as family. And here we're told do not rebuke an older man. In in other words, that word there, rebuke, means do not strike that man, that older man, with sharp, insensitive, brutal words. It's not saying don't correct him, it's saying don't strike him with these brutal, insensitive words. And, And our tendency, I must say, is to be harsh with adults with people who are to be mature. Why? Because we expect more from an adult. When a teenager does something wrong or foolish, uh, we say, well, his mind, his brain is still not fully developed. And we tend to have more tolerance for the teenager, as absurd as it may be, whatever it is he did. It is much more difficult when we see an adult do the same thing, because we say, you should know better. You're an adult. So we have little tolerance for such behavior. But here Paul says, rather encourage him with your correction. In other words, beseech him, Implore with him with consoling words, of encouraging corrective words. Correct him, yes, but do so with consoling, encouraging words. In other words, treat him as you would your father. Personally, I have yet to, to, in my mind come across one time in which I truly encouraged my father in the sense of I corrected him. That has not yet happened between my dad and I. He's 89 years old. Now there are times in which I think I should, but I say that's what my brother's for. (laughs) (laughs) I just can't bring myself to doing that. Right or wrong. Now, in all honesty, my father still takes it upon himself to correct me. Rightly so. I'm perpetually his son. But I must say, my my brothers get corrected more often. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know that that's true. Treat this man as your father. How do you treat your father? With gentleness Correct them with kindness and respect. Treat them as your father. My friends, we may be angry at something, and it may very well be righteous anger, righteous indignation. But the scriptures are clear in Ephesians 4: In your anger, do not sin. Why? Because when you do sin in your anger, Ephesians 4:27, you give a foothold the devil. You are actually giving the devil an opportunity to step a little further into your life when you respond in sinful anger. In your anger, do not sin. Righteous indignation can very quickly become sinful indignation when we do so with the wrong attitude. When we lose control of our tongue, when we lose control of our feelings, of our emotions, what is good becomes quickly bad, even sinful. And so here the Bible says, correct with gentleness, whether you're a parent or a brother, whatever it may be, whatever your role may be in whatever place in life you are, whenever we're together, correct with gentleness, kindness, and respect, when dealing with a man older than you. That's number one, category number one. Here's category number two. Same verse, verse one, second half. The younger man. How do you correct the younger man? Well, the same is true for the younger man as we see for the older man. Encourage him, it says. Encourage him with your words of correction. That is to say, beseech or implore with consoling corrective words. Which naturally, of course, would mean that you're not going to be rebuking that person. In other words, uh, saying to that person, striking that person with these sharp and sensitive, brutal words. You're going to, like the older man, the younger man too. You're going to encourage him. Young men tend to need more correction than older men, I would say. However, I could also say this. The younger men are more correctable or more corrigible than older men, by far. Well, here it says, treat that young man who is in error, who is in sin, treat that young man as a brother. Treat each other as family. Treat that younger man as a brother. Now, please notice here, the idea here is not so much that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. That's not the concept that's coming through here. What we see here is the idea, the principle that as Christians, we are to be sensitive to each other, and we do not want to injure each other. So treat each other as brothers. Not because there's more advantage, uh, there's a greater advantage that he will listen to you if you are kinder, honey, but no, because he is your brother, because you want to be kind, because you are sensitive to that person, encourage him, Treat him as a brother. Because that would only be right. Not just advantageous to your process. Compassion that sincerely cares about the other person. Treat him as a brother. Treat him like a brother who you love. Be kind, be gentle, of course. You're going to be forgiving. Why? Because you live side by side. That's what brothers do. Treat that young man as someone who needs to be mentored by a big brother. Oh, but what he's doing is wrong. Exactly. That's why you have to come alongside of him. Oh, but you don't know what he did. Exactly. That's why you need to come alongside of him as a brother and correct him with encouraging words. Category number three. Verse 2, older women. How should we correct older women? How many of you, you could stand up, are considered older women? No, you don't want to stand up for that either. <laughs> I saw one hand. Older women. Here we read verse 2, encourage her with your correction. That is to say, you will beseech her, you will implore with her with consoling, corrective words. Which naturally means then that you're not going to rebuke her with with, with sharp, insensitive, brutal words. Rather, you encourage her. And look at what it says there. It says, encourage her as you would your mother. As you would your mother. Now, it implies that you love and respect your mother. I've seen some people that treat their mother very well at all. That's not what the text is saying here. It is telling us that you love your mother. You care about your mother. You're sensitive to your mother. Treat then this woman, though she's not your mother, treat this older woman as if she was your mother, so that you are conveying here a particular love and devotion towards her. So, that across the depths of your heart is tattooed, Mom. Mom. Treat her like that person. Which means that you are going to be sensitive, of course, to the fact that she is a female. You won't speak to her as you speak to a man. You will choose your words appropriately so that what you say is what you mean, and what you mean is easily understood. What I have learned over the years, and many of you would agree, is that what a man means and what a woman hears are usually two different things. (laughs) And it works the other way around as well. What a woman means and what a man hears are very distinct. So here are some factors to consider that are not in the text, but I think they will play out well in your life if you consider these factors when correcting a woman, an older woman. Now, whether you're a man or a woman, I think these are to be considered. Factors to consider when trying to do the right thing and correcting someone who you know is dear to you, like Mom, and you're afraid for that person. The the, the direction you're going is dangerous, and the scriptures say, and you you want to correct this person. Here's one thing you need to consider. First of all, you're... Personality, your personality. What you convey may not be what you intend to convey. Consider your personality. Number two, consider her condition and her personality. Is she a fragile woman? Is she a new believer? Is she clueless? In other words, is she going to be surprised by your approach in correcting her? Is it going to be something that's just going to come from, to her, at her, uh, from nowhere? What is her situation these days? Is she exasperated? Is life so harsh, so difficult, that it's making her just make poor decisions? Is she afraid? And that's why she ended up doing what she's doing. Each of these Will make your words and your attitude extremely important. Consider this too your own cultural practices. Uh, I, I live a life that, in different settings, I just very easily assimilate to different cultures. It's the way I grew up. Uh, many of you, to your benefit or to your detriment, did not have that opportunity. I have the ability to adjust quickly. Other people do not, but I do know this. At times I don't adjust, and I apply one culture to another culture, and it never goes over well. Consider your cultural practices. We do live in a melting pot of cultures, and what is normal for you may very well not be normal for other people. Your body language, your choice of words, your gesture, your facial expressions... And even your expectations are often the results of a particular culture that may not easily translate to the culture you're speaking to. And so they interpret what you're saying far differently than what you are actually meaning to say. So you need to be aware of yourself, how you're presenting yourself when you're looking to correct somebody in love, in the name of Christ. And what are, of course... Some of the present stresses this person may be living. What are the circumstances in this person's life? Determine, my friends, not only what and how you will speak to that person, but also consider when you're going to speak to the person. It may not always be the right time. Consider it. This is true of men as well, but more so when you're speaking to women. And consider how and why that person fell into this sin or into this error. What, what brought this woman to this place in life? What, was it thrust on her so that she was cornered and she had to react this way? Or, or was it intentional? I did this because I wanted to do it and I don't care what you think. Was it an innocent, unaware lapse of judgment? Or was it a bad decision made by a well-meaning Sister, was it the result of an overwhelming emotional upheaval in life that has led to this poor judgment? These are things to consider as you speak to people and biblically, accurately, encourage them to do the right thing. Here's the fourth category. It's the second half of verse 2. I find it very interesting. This young pastor, Timothy, as well as me, this old pastor, Paul, and you, we are all encouraged to correct one another, and here in the case of correcting younger women. Recently, uh, my wife and son and I watched the movie Father of the Bride. Have you seen it? It recounts not only uh, all that's involved in a um, in an American wedding, uh, but it recounts the father's reluctant surrender to give up his little girl. And he cries because he's only had her for about 22 years, and now suddenly um, he has to surrender her to this young man he barely knows. And he's heartbroken, and he has to accept that now he's been replaced in his daughter's heart. Another man has taken His place. And so he does his best in this story to oppose this new man and to correct his young daughter to no avail. And then he finds himself paying this exorbitant bill for the the reception. I must say, there, there is something about giving away a daughter that is not matched by handing over your son to marriage. I am thankful that I have three boys. I'm sorry for you who have three daughters. (laughs) How hard it is to give away your daughter. Like the young male, the young female needs to be addressed appropriately, yes. Um, She's certainly unique. Maybe she's a young girl that is um, very creative and Extroverted, maybe she's very intelligent and open to all kinds of new experiences, or maybe she's quite the opposite. Maybe she's a quiet, reserved young lady, hardworking and very nurturing and, and and patient. Maybe she's shy. It doesn't matter. Here it says very clearly: you are to, you are to treat her as a sister. The servant in God's household must be eager to treat her as a sister when it comes to correcting her like like the sister like the one who lives in the bedroom down the hall the one who shares the breakfast table with you as you grow up together treat her as a sister encourage her with your correction that is to say you beseech her with consoling words you implore with corrective words you encourage her You don't rebuke her, laying on this young lady sharp, insensitive, brutal words, but rather you encourage her. I do find it interesting that the Bible does tell us at times to rebuke. It tells us to rebuke those who openly oppose God. But notice here it tells us to encouragingly encouragingly correct those within the household of God who are in error or in sin. That's what we are to do. If you want to avoid stress, grief, and and breakup in the household of God, follow what we see here in these two verses. Treat each other as family. Here's a great principle for pastors. Never use the pastor's crook, the shepherd's crook, as a club. And here's a principle for all of us. It's found in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Is it there on the wall for us? It reads this way. Brothers, and sisters, right? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, meaning sin, you who are spiritual, in other words, mature, godly, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, what is it? Gentleness. Gentleness. And then there's a warning for you, corrector. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Do not think that you are exempt from the same error, from the same sin. Only because today you are correcting doesn't mean that tomorrow you will not be sinning. Correct, but do so with gentleness if you are the spiritually mature person. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, going back to 1 Timothy 5, notice there the very last three words in our English translation. You are to treat her as a sister in all purity, in all purity. Treat her like a sister. That is, be pure when working with her, when correcting her. Be pure in your thoughts. Be pure in your desires, your intentions. Be pure in your imagination when you are correcting her. With absolute purity, treat her as that girl who lives down the hall, who is your sister. Purity. Now, there are many people, many pastors, unfortunately, who initially wanted to do what is right, they wanted to help, but they found themselves instead injuring and falling into sin themselves. Why? Because they did not heed this warning of purity. She was pretty. We were alone. I did not treat her as a sister. And now I'm guilty. I've heard it many, many times. Too many times. My friends, treat her as your sister, which would require a sense of purity. But listen, it goes the other way around, too. I came across a blogger by the name of Courtney Rysick. She She writes in the reverse. Listen to what she says. This is to you, ladies. Protect the men around you by giving them no other choice but to treat you like a sister. That's good advice. You will be happier, your life will be easier, she writes. And in the end, the, guy who, the guys who don't want to follow the Bible will take their ball and go home. God knew that he was, what he was doing when he gave us the commands of the Scripture, and, and it's worth the weight and the discipline to abide by his standards. Treat these men as if you were their sister. The truth is that women have the tremendous power of having Christian men act like Christian men, she writes. Instead of acting like unrestrained levitos, the, the circle that the circle their prey, waiting for the next opportunity to take advantage of young ladies. Young ladies, treat these men as if you were their sisters. Men See these younger women who are around you as your younger sister and it will be very difficult to have impure thoughts. Proverbs 6:25 reads this way, men, do not desire her beauty in your heart. You can admit she's beautiful, but do not desire her beauty in your heart if your goal is to be pure and correct what is wrong. One of the great advantages that we have as a church community is that we can not only, not only can we hold each other accountable, but we can actually guide each other down the road of sanctification. That's an opportunity that we're given as people in a household of God. We can help each other go in a direction that we ought to go. This, that's a responsibility we have towards each other. Again, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, Brothers, sisters, if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore him or her in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. The pastor's responsibility, of course, is to properly use the shepherd's crook. But the task of growing together, of doing this together, is all of ours. It means that together we hold each other to the standards of God. Not with gossipy uh, a language or tongues, not with self-righteous fingers pointing at each other, no. But together, holding up the standard of God for each other, so that we as a church would be a sweet aroma to the throne of God. It's not just being idealistic. It's being biblical. That's the task of the church to one another if we want to build the church of Christ. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to be able to study your word and see that you speak to every aspect of life. And we pray indeed, Lord, that not only would we pursue your ways, your standard for our lives individually, but that we would help each other to walk that narrow path and to walk in a way that acknowledges you and your word, your standards in day-to-day life. Amen.